This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A hospital in Pueblo made an unusual request of the community recently. They asked for volunteers to hold, rock, and cuddle babies born with opioids in their system. St. Mary Corwin Medical Center had been relying on staffers willing to help in off hours, like Lori Briggs from the IT department. You can go upstairs and just hold those babies who need that. With more Coloradans addicted to heroin and prescription drugs, there are more babies born dependent on those substances. And Briggs says they are especially hard to soothe. I've sat with one for probably 45 minutes, and by the time I got done, she was very calm, and I could figure out what she liked, and I could put, you know, my little hand on the top of her head, and she would just relax. And it's just fun to take each baby individually and figure out how you can love and comfort them in their own little way. Pueblo's response to the call for volunteers was overwhelming. Now they will be screened, trained, and scheduled, says nurse Paulette Mapes. She leads the birth center at St. Mary Corwin. Mapes says all babies need to be held, of course. But these babies especially are going through a rough time. They come into the world addicted, and they go through all of the same physical withdrawal symptoms that an adult would. So these babies can go from just, you know, maybe yawning quite a bit, being a little bit fussy, a little bit jittery, to the point of having convulsions. They can have a very high-pitched, inconsolable cry, diarrhea, um, which leads to their little bottoms becoming not just a diaper rash, but just um, what we call excoriated. Most of the babies we see are somewhere in the middle, especially when we start having to give them medication to help manage those withdrawal symptoms. And we have to wean that up, keep them kind of on a therapeutic level for a while, and then actually wean or withdraw them. And the holding really helps here, huh? For babies that aren't needing medication to withdraw, it can be just human touch, cuddling, soothing, much like a baby that would not be going through withdrawal. Mm-hmm. You know, every baby needs soothing and cuddling. Um, these babies need it more. And normally, who would hold these babies? Like, would, would that be up to their parents, or is it just that they need more holding than that? If they're able to sleep, these babies have a very hard time sleeping. So if they're able to sleep and they're sleeping comfortably, we would let them sleep. But they don't sleep well. So it's pretty much having someone there to hold them, soothe them, be a real calming force for them pretty much every waking minute. And indeed, the call you put out was really well received by the community Um, Yes. What is the need? Uh, That is to say, are there babies right now addicted to Um, opioids? There there are. And it's something that, you know, it's unpredictable. At this time yesterday, we didn't um, have any babies needing this kind of support, and we now do. So the most that we have had at one time was six babies actively withdrawing in our nursery here. What we're hoping to do is to have kind of a call system with the idea that we would have cuddler shifts in two-hour sessions. Because like I, lo- I said, this I love that you call it be... cuddler shifts, cuddler shifts. Yeah, cuddler shifts, yeah. Have you found that some volunteers uh, just can't go through with it when once they're exposed to the environment? 
we have. And the other thing is it really takes a special person to be able to do this, help this baby, and do so in a way that is not judgmental toward the mom and the family. And I've often said I have yet to meet the mom who thought, I'm just going to see if I can hurt my baby. That's just really not the case. Will you teach them particular skills, the volunteers? I mean, I wonder if there's a a sort of art to cuddling, you know? There certainly is an art. These aren't babies. You know, some babies you'll see and they, they love to kind of be jostled and this kind of thing. These babies need some very gentle, quiet, slow movement. These aren't, a ba- aren't babies that you would kind of bounce on your knee. According to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the number of babies reported to be dependent on opioids nearly doubled from 2010 to 2015. Uh, You've been at that hospital for 27 years, my goodness. How has your experience mirrored those larger findings? I would say that is very um, close to what our experience has been. Hmm. It used to be an extremely rare thing. You know, I can think of probably my first maybe 20 years, I can think of maybe one or two babies that were in this situation And we've just seen it grown, you know, exponentially, it feels like, just much more prevalent. Are these babies likely to be in the hospital for longer than... Absolutely. uh, Yeah, so that's part of the need, too. You know, some babies, again, if we don't have to, you know, add medication, it may be several days to a week. Babies that are having a harder time that we have to keep on medication for longer. We've had babies in the nursery up to three months. Is there some sense that these babies will be better off long term because of what you're doing today? Well, I don't know, and we certainly don't have any evidence to support that. What we can say is that they're better off right in that moment. And that, that's a lot, so, isn't it? And that's a lot, yeah. That's a lot. It occurs to me that these are mothers who are struggling with addiction themselves, and then they're going to get home and they're going to have a baby that uh, has perhaps even greater needs than, you know, a newborn that doesn't have opioids in their system. That's exactly correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we do some things to try to help with that. Um, We encourage them to be here at the hospital as much as they're they are able and before discharge to spend some time, you know, pretty much 24/7 including nights in that situation here at the hospital where we're able to support them through that and give them an idea of what they're going to be facing at home. Do you worry about the babies that go home? We do. We do. What do you do? What do you do with that worry? Um we we talk about it. We I do what I can to support my staff and really make sure that we're getting them any kind of help through the hospital or our spiritual care department. But it, it is. It's a, it's a tough job. Thank you for being with us. You bet. Thank you. Nurse Paulette Mapes manages the birthplace at St. Mary Corwin Medical Center in Pueblo. We talked about their call for cuddlers, volunteers who can help soothe newborns with opioids in their systems. The hospital says it does now have the volunteers it needs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
From Adams to Yuma, Colorado has 64 counties, and in her first year in office, Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn has visited all of them. She is trying to help her boss, Governor John Hickenlooper, take Colorado's pulse. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. I want you to take me to a place you visited on this tour that stands out in your mind, perhaps an issue that was brought up there. Sure. Um, And it's pretty hard to narrow it down with 64. I did learn how to drive a tractor in Cheyenne Wells, but that sticks out in my mind for very different (laughs) reasons. Um, One county that certainly comes to my mind is Rio Blanca County, where there's a lot of coal mining, and that's important to the economy there. But the Department of Natural Resources also works with the coal mine on reclamation. So seeing that balance of the importance of some of these jobs in those communities, to also preserving our environment was quite striking for me. I was in Morgan County and saw how our energy office helps make uh, dairy farmers do their work more efficiently, which is really important given how much they consume in terms of electricity. Uh, Some of these counties are not necessarily democratically friendly territory, would you say? That's correct. (laughs) What did you hear, for instance, from did you meet uh, coal miners themselves in Rio Blanco County? Um, I did meet coal miners, but throughout the entire rural area of Colorado, I was fortunate not only to just meet state employees who were providing services in those counties or county employees, but also with county commissioners and mayors. And I would say they consistently came back <clears throat> with about three or four issues. Okay. The cost of health care in rural Colorado is way in excess of what it is in the Front Range. And they've lost insurers. They've lost choice. Absolutely. The Second issue is broadband and the need for broadband just to basically do their work. The third is affordable housing. And I would say the fourth is the whole drug uh, issues that they have in those counties. Some of them are the gray market and marijuana, but some of it are the opioid problems that are uh, particularly prevalent in our rural counties. Why don't we get to some of those issues individually? So Uh, As you say, high-speed Internet is very important to these communities. I'll say that the legislature's most recent budget compromise allocates $9.5 million for that. Where will that money go? Well, um, first of all, $9.5 million, which is great, doesn't really solve the problem. We only have about 75% of our rural households having uh, broadband, and we want to get to 100%. Um, That'll probably cost about $125 million over the next few years I see. to get there. So that's there. not even 10% of it. That's know. right. But it's a, it's a beginning. And we have a broadband fund where we support some of the rural communities that come forward with plans. So one by one, I think we're going to make a dent, but we have a long way to go. And they see that, I know, in rural Colorado very much as, as a potential job creator, don't they? Absolutely. More and more people are living and working at home. Our rural schools need broadband access to do internet searches and to do exams. And importantly, our rural hospitals and health clinics need broadband because um, if you don't have specialists in those communities, they do rely on communication with specialists in the front range, for example. To the cost of health care and the narrowing choices of insurance providers, what did you tell them? 
Well, what I told them was actually I've been working with a number of uh, rural lawmakers over the last uh, six, seven months to come up with some solutions to, in fact, um, subsidize the premiums that people in rural areas uh, pay through our individual exchange. Actually, 47 counties would have been affected by that. Unfortunately, didn't make it out of the Senate committee that it was assigned to. These would be subsidies in addition to the ones that already exist on the exchange. That's say. correct, because people at 400 percent of poverty still have a tough time affording health care in those rural communities. So tough totes, you tell those folks, <laughs> given what happened to that legislation? Yeah, I think it's a, it's. I think it's not something that we're going to give up on. Uh, this administration believes that health care should be affordable for all, that we should be transparent with our consumers so they can shop in an informed way. And we've got some opportunities to continue to work on that going forward. What perspective did this tour of all of Colorado's counties, Lieutenant Governor Donald Lynn, what perspective did it give you on the urban-rural divide, the division we've seen before and after the election. Um, you know, not, not a lot of people talked about the November 8th election. What they did talk about the, was the fact that the recovery was somewhat uneven. And I think we're very proud of the fact that our unemployment rate statewide is 2.6 percent, the lowest it's been in the 41 years it's been collected. But we know in some of our rural communities, it's double that. We know our rural communities are having a hard time hiring teachers, for example. And I think we're continuing to look at those issues because I know the governor believes and I believe you can't just have a recovery and a vibrant economy in the front range. What are some other ways you're looking at boosting those economies? Well, um, we do give grants uh, for some basic infrastructure needs. Um, some of that comes from the marijuana tax, for example, to support our rural school infra- physical infrastructure. Yeah, that's not to be used for hiring teachers, that's for instance. That's correct. It's just for the infrastructure itself, the buildings. Um, the other thing is our Department of Local Affairs works on infrastructure needs. It could be sewer plants. It could be town halls. It could be uh, there's some broadband money that comes through there. Uh, And so between the Department of Local Affairs and our Economic Development Office, we really are looking at how do we give incentives to people in those regions, whether it's new jobs or it's the infrastructure that they would otherwise have to divert tax revenue to. We spoke recently with the head of tourism for Colorado, who also talked about the unevenness in some ways of visitors. You know, they often go to the mountain communities, to the resorts. And I know that there is some interest in attracting people to places in Colorado that don't often see tourists or as much. That's absolutely true. In fact, I just led a leadership initiative with our tourism office where we're beginning to train people outside of the core mountain areas on how to develop some attractions in those communities. Their history, their interesting buildings, something like that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got mining that's occurred across the state, and there's a rich history with that. We have some great old railroads that, uh, like the Galloping Goose, that, that really give you a sense of history throughout the state. I want to say that before you took this job as lieutenant governor a year ago now, you were president of Kaiser Permanente in Colorado, and uh, Governor Hickenlooper often says he relies heavily on your expertise I do want to ask in the realm of healthcare and rural hospitals in particular, there are really intense negotiations right now around a piece of legislation uh, to fund rural hospitals without it. Some say they may close. Uh, There apparently is even a, a version of this bill that has emerged this morning. What can you tell us about these negotiations? Well, we do have, uh, 
eight more, nine more days left in the session. So, and as you know, uh, things get pretty intense as we get uh, further on. This is really the number one priority of the governor in terms of this legislative session. We know that we need to um, recognize the hospital provider fee as an enterprise uh, fund. That's, this is an accounting change that uh, would free up money in the budget. That's right. It, and it frees up money in the budget for other things, but it also restores some of these um, planned cuts or proposed cuts for some of our rural hospitals and actually even uh, in, co- in the front range for Denver Health. Uh, transportation also included, I think, in some some education money as well. Are you optimistic that there can be a compromise? Democrats and Republicans have uh, not seen eye to eye on this particular I, front. I think we're optimistic because, as you mentioned, many of the rural hospitals are in uh, Senate districts that are led by Republicans, and they clearly understand the importance of those rural hospitals to their communities. But if that were a motivator, wouldn't there already be a deal? I think you um, – there have been a number of attempts both at a transportation bill, at a hospital provider fee um, bill, and I think it's coming together. As you say, there's uh, – we're knitting this together uh, very closely with the Senate and the assemb- and the um, and the House, and I think we're, we're making a lot of progress. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by Colorado's Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn, uh, who is under the Democratic governor, John Hickenlooper. So the governors and uh, the governor and others rather have talked about a system that might allow insurance companies to sell policies across state lines. The idea is to increase the number of customers and competition. I wonder if any neighboring states have indicated that they would join a regional exchange. Yeah, so just to be clear, there's sort of two different issues. One is selling insurance across state lines doesn't do a whole lot. You still have to have a network in Colorado. Um, what it does allow you potentially to do is get away from mandates that an individual state provides. Um, the regional exchange is a separate matter yeah. that applies to the roughly 175,000 people that we have who are individuals who buy insurance through what we call Connect for Health Colorado. And who have may, who may have lost choice on the exchange. They have, although on our exchange, unlike some of the others in the other states, uh, we have 13 health plans in Colorado that currently in 2017 are on our exchange. The idea of a regional exchange would be there are some uh, states that participate in the federal exchange. And if What's going on in Washington could potentially eliminate the federal exchange. Our exchange has been so successful. We stand ready to help out states like Wyoming or Utah and say, uh, come on into our exchange. We think we can provide great uh, customer service and uh, efficiency in offering plans to the individual people in your state. So those conversations are ongoing? We've been having some of those conversations. Uh, again, if you live in Utah, you're not going to use a network in Colorado. So you still need to have the relationships with doctors and hospitals in Utah, for example. But the infrastructure of the exchange. That's right. Enrolling people, answering their questions and things like that. Although our exchange in Colorado has been the subject of some audits and some review. And uh, there have been in the past uh, findings uh, that it has not been well managed. Yeah, I think um, the federal government does those sort of routine audits, looked at some of the startup costs. But I think we're very proud of the work that Connect for Health has done and reduced their costs, actually, over the last several years. I want to bring up an issue that you heard on your tour of Colorado's counties 
uh, and that is addiction to opioids. In 2015, opioid deaths outnumbered murders in Colorado. And uh, this is a particular problem in rural areas, as you heard. What What is the next step the state should try to take to lower addiction rates? So I think the state's taking a couple of steps. First of all, one is just general awareness. I think there isn't a day that goes by that you can't read about this in the paper, hear about it on the radio or or listen to the television. Uh, and we have a something called a prescription drug monitoring program in Colorado, which requires physicians who issue opioid prescriptions for pain uh, to register. And we have begun and will continue to disseminate information to a a doctor so that he or she knows, wow, uh, Donna came in and she already has four of these prescriptions. Maybe I ought to not issue her another one. The the other part is... Is there any sense that that's working? um, We've got a significant number of doctors who have registered for it and, and use it. Um, And it's been proven in other states to actually reduce uh, opioid use. Many states actually have um, some limits on the number of pills that a physician can prescribe. We don't do that in Colorado, but we are looking at other ways that we can expand treatment and, as I said, general awareness on the opioid problem. Are you looking for more doctors to be a part of that tracking system? Well, right now it's mandatory to sign up. To be in to be part of the tracking system, uh-huh. but it's not mandatory to use it once you've signed up. And I think that is a place that other states have gone. And uh, working with our physician community, I think it is a it is an alternative that we're going to explore. The mandate yes. of checking it. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so we might see legislation around that. That's right. In the future, when you became lieutenant governor, you also took on the role of chief operating officer. And one of the things you talked about when you first took office was trying to plan beyond the one-year budget that the state now uses. How how would that work? Well, I think as a chief operating officer of any business, and I think the state of Colorado is like a business with a $28 billion budget, um, you can't just lurch from event to event or crisis to crisis and being able to understand what's my trajectory in terms of our revenues, what's my trajectory in terms of the demands on the state. While we haven't formally proposed anything like a multi-year budget. Do any states do multi-year budgeting? They do, Uh actually. Um, And it's they may not call it a budget. They may call it a financial plan versus a budget. But it allows you to anticipate trends that are going on in uh, Washington, for example. It allows you to anticipate uh, what we may know about how our state's changing demographically. Uh, one great issue is uh, we're getting older in Colorado, and our tax revenue is going to go down because older people pay less taxes because partly because they're not working anymore. So we've got to look at our demographics and other characteristics when we think about the long-term impact on revenue. And so any sense that there could be an implementation of multi-year budgeting in the future? You know, we haven't, as I said, we haven't had that explicit conversation. I think internally we do some of that planning and we'll certainly advise our legislators about longer-term forecasts. Uh, Yes or no, is a special session 
of the legislature possible, given the big issues that are running down the clock? I think it's possible. It's not preferred because we just as soon get everything done now that we have to get done, especially the hospital provider fee. Thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Donna Lynn has been Colorado's lieutenant governor for a year now. Formerly, she was president of Kaiser Permanente Colorado, and she recently finished a tour of all 64 counties in the state. Lynn succeeded Joe Garcia, who resigned last year to take a job in higher education. Still to come, did downtown Denver lose a piece of its soul? 50 years ago. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Downtown Denver lost many architectural gems in the name of progress. And what was there to show for it? A lot of parking lots. Fifty years ago this month, voters approved the Skyline Urban Renewal Plan. It targeted 27 blocks for demolition, and its effects reverberate today. Some of those surface parking lots remain. Ken Schreppel teaches urban planning at CU Denver. He's also the founder of the Denver Infill and Denver Urbanism websites. And Ken, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to be here. We think of downtown Denver today as booming, Mm -hmm. but that certainly was not the case back in the mid-1960s when this plan came about. What was downtown like in the 1960s? Yeah, so in the 1960s, much of downtown Denver had been developed in the late um, 1800s. So these were buildings from, you know, 1880, 1890, that were at that point now 60, 70, 80 years old and were in need of some refurbishment or perhaps they were approaching obsolescence. So, you know, and there hadn't been a lot of buildings that were developed during the previous decade, so in the 30s due to the Depression, during the 40s because of World War II. So we had a fairly old uh, building stock in downtown Denver. I mean, old for America. You yeah. Know, you you, you right. think of, of Europe and there are many hundreds years old buildings. Right. And it's, I guess it's a different view of those. Yeah. I think it's also important to remember that in, in the 1960s, this was at, it's really the peak of modernism, both architecturally where buildings were very streamlined and we looked back upon these older buildings that had a lot of ornamentation and those were not in favor anymore. But also more philosophically, modernism was really about embracing the future. And we looked back at those older uh, buildings with, um, you know, we didn't see that they had much value to us. And so 27 blocks were slated for demolition to, to make room for what? You know, this was a plan pushed by civic and business leaders. What did they want to see? What were the specifics of the plan? Well, it was really to uh, give Denver the modern city, the, the skyline that we wanted to have as a regional and, and, and emerging national city. Uh, again, a lot of these older buildings were two, three, four stories in height. And in the post-war era, we were starting to see really uh, cities across the country um, exploding with skyscraper construction. And we needed room to do that. At least that was the thought. So out with the old in with the new modern skyline. Did that apply as well to people? That is to say, were people displaced? Definitely. Um, The parts of downtown that were demolished as part of the Skyline Urban Renewal Project was known at the time as Skid Row. Uh, A lot of pawn shops and uh, cheap motels and things like that, where a lot of Denver's uh, unfortunate uh, people lived. And they were... um, yeah, they were definitely displaced. And 
Certainly today, I think we would have taken a different approach on that. But back then, I think the uh, the feeling was that, um, you know, they were going to find ways to, to help these people. But I think a lot of people were just sort of swept under the rug. You have uh, intimated that this was happening elsewhere in the country, mm-hmm. this urban renewal of other cities. Denver voters approved the plan by a two to one margin in May 1967. Mm-hmm. And what was torn down? Well, pretty much everything except for a, fil- a few buildings. Uh, the boundaries for the skyline uh, was the uh, Cherry Creek to 20th Street, and then the alley between Larimer and Market over to Curtis, so about 27 square blocks. The only buildings that really survived uh, were Larimer Square, uh, the DNF Clock Tower. Yeah, on the 16th Street Mall, yeah. the vestiges of a department store. Yep. Um, the uh, building where the Hotel Teatro is today. And then the uh, spaghetti factory um, building, which was an old cable railway uh, railway building at 18th and Lawrence that was also saved. And some of what you've described there that were saved uh, are Denver's most charming places. Yeah. Downtown, certainly. Absolutely. So what significant buildings were lost in the name of progress? Well, there was the... Uh, uh, the uh, Daniels and Fisher Department Store, uh, the Tabor Grand Opera House, uh, Old Post Office. Some of these were just beautiful, ornate buildings that we would just die to have today. They were either torn down during the Skyline project itself or, you know, in the years preceding Skyline during that same era, though, where these buildings were looked upon as not uh, being uh, having much value. You can see photos of downtown Denver just after the demolition at cprnews.org. And there is a website called skyscraperpage.com, which we've also linked to with some remarkable photographs showing downtown Denver by the 70s. -hmm. And all you see is block after block after block of surface parking lots. Right. So what happened to the promise of all of those modern office towers that were to replace these historic buildings. Well, what the, the plan here was that the city would tear down these blocks and prepare them for redevelopment. But the building of the buildings themselves was really dependent upon the private sector to come through and to, to do this. And the economy, of course. Yeah. And so it was really dependent upon the real estate cycles. And thing with 27 square blocks is that you're never going to have 27 square blocks of development in one real estate cycle. In fact, not even two or even three real estate cycles. And we still have a handful of those parking lots that are still left over from Skyline today. Um, But it was really just let the private sector do its thing with the vertical development, but at least the land was available for them to do that on. But that took a very long time, really until today Yeah, in many ways. I want to say that not every building that was raised in this project was some architectural gorgeous gem. That's right. Uh, We have focused on some of the gems lost, but there were, I think, a lot of plain commercial buildings torn down as well. Right. Yeah, there were a handful of, you know, a couple two-story buildings that were fairly simple in their architecture that probably did not need to be preserved. It's been said that Denver lost some of its soul, Ken Schreppel, as a result of the Skyline Project. Do you agree? 
A little bit. Um, yeah, there were certainly some of those key buildings. If we had them today, we would be pointing to them with pride uh, as representing some of the best of what Denver was back in the 1800s. And they're no longer with us and we can't bring them back. So in that sense, we did lose a little bit of our soul. But Denver has a lot of soul. And so uh, there was, there's still plenty, of le- plenty left over for us to feel good about ourselves today as a city. Was the plan overly ambitious, do you think? Was it... Um a mistake in toto? Mm -hmm. You know, um, the Skyline Urban Renewal Project was really taking a sledgehammer to the problem where we really should have used a scalpel. We should have been a little bit more strategic rather than just wiping out 27 square blocks. We should have gone in and said, well, okay, here we have a developer who wants to do a project on this location. There, uh, you know, the buildings there are not of particular significance. To be more concentrated. Yeah, so we could focus on those key areas and then save the buildings that really should have been preserved. I suppose that it's easy to criticize something 50 years later with the eyes that we have today. Is there anything about the Skyline Project that had the right uh, approach the right idea? Hmm. Well, back then we were convinced that what we were doing was right. Um, just like today, we feel that in, in the current era where we're focusing on mixed uses and infill development and bicycle and pedestrian and transit infrastructure and the like, that we're doing the right thing today. So, And let, let me translate some of that. Mixed use meaning living where there are also businesses, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a residential neighborhood. There's like a Correct. nice mix. Yep. And then transit-oriented development and bikeability, walkability. These are all ideas right. we have today. And what are you saying? In 50 years, we may look back and say... Uh, how, how misguided we were or something. <laughs> There's always that possibility. However, I feel that we're uh, – what we're doing today, I, I believe, is is pretty solid in terms of uh, philosophically uh, doing the right thing because what we're really doing today, Ryan, is we're really bringing back old urbanism, the way that we had been building cities since the dawn of civilization. And when we look at the cities either nationally or internationally that we value and that we love to go to as an experience – these are cities that have good mix of uses and great um, transit and pedestrian infrastructure, just like Denver had back before World War II. So at the time of this plan, we looked upon those 1800s buildings as an eyesore and mm-hmm. that they were to be raised in the name of progress and modernism. Is it possible that we are looking at an architectural style or, or time or vernacular now and saying, gosh, it's ugly, mm-hmm. but if we only waited 20 more years, we'd see its beauty again? <laughs> well, that's a good question. And maybe it's the modernist buildings that replaced the 1800s. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that a lot of people look at the 1970s towers all over Capitol Hill and think those are eyesores. You know, I think great cities are are cities that have buildings from every era. And that when you start to see the layering of history through these buildings from decades and centuries, that's what really makes cities interesting places. Uh, We want to avoid a city, a city that has uh, you know, sort of a homogeneity in its building stock. We want there to be a mix. And so I think that those 1970s buildings that may not be the the, the greatest architecturally, they're still important because they're part of the fabric of the city and they represent what was going on at the time. And I know that some question the quality of, of the buildings going up now in Denver, mm-hmm. you know, to accommodate a huge influx of people. 
Right. Yeah, that's um, it's probably not unexpected that when you have so much construction that people uh, are going to are going to question that. Um, but we'll see. I mean, these are bu- buildings that are being built to modern um, building standards, and so um, I think the uh, I think. The, Declaring their demise, their demise is a little premature. I think that they'll be around with us for another uh, many years. Will the surface parking lots be gone totally soon? Do you think? E- eventually, In I mean, downtown. I think it may take another couple of real estate cycles. Despite how many buildings have been built and and surface par- uh, uh, parking lots replaced. There's still a lot of surface parking lots, uh, not only in downtown, but when you look at Arapahoe Square, Golden Triangle, some of the other downtown and uh, the neighborhoods adjacent to the Central Business District. There's a lot to go, Ryan. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Ken Shreppel teaches urban planning at CU Denver. He's founder of the Denver Infill and Denver Urbanism websites. Fifty years ago, a massive swath of downtown Denver was raised in the name of progress. When you're alone. And life is making you lonely You can always go downtown When you've got worries All the noise and the hurry Seems to help I know Downtown Just listen to the music Of the traffic in the city It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. All sorts of things inspire Denver poet Wayne Miller. A plane crash, a shooting, a pair of dusty reading glasses. His latest collection called Post recently won the Rilke Prize and is a finalist for a Colorado Book Award. And Wayne, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. The first poem in this collection is called The Debt, and uh, it turns the burden of debt into a physical space. Will you read it for us? Absolutely. Great. The debt. He entered through the doorway of his debt. Workmen followed, bringing box after box until everything he'd gathered in his life inhabited his debt. He opened the sliding door to the yard. A breeze blew through the spaces of his debt, blew the bills from the table onto the floor. The grove of birches and farther the beach of driftwood and broken shells were framed by the enormous window, that lens-like architectural focus of his debt. He drove into town on the coiled springs of his debt. When he bought fish at the market, he proffered his MasterCard. The dark woods stretching inland were pocked by light-filled cubes of debt. The very words he used to describe his surroundings were glittering facets of debt. Each visit we smoked on the deck and over drinks he reminded me with love and genuine pride. One day all this debt would be mine. Is this your father? Um, yeah, more or less, yeah. Did he bestow upon you a lot of debt? Yeah, my dad died in 2008, um, right at the beginning of the Great Recession, and his house was deeply underwater. (laughs) And so um, uh, a lot of what I uh, dealt with logistically, I mean, there are other things you deal with with a loss, but a lot of what I dealt with logistically had to do with um, uh, disentangling 
his um, his debt and his financial problems. This poem gives us the sense that you knew it was coming. So was that debt not a surprise? Oh, it was a surprise, was. actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew that his house was was a little bit underwater. He'd just refinanced it. And so um, I knew that was there, but I didn't know the full scope of it. Do you think that this poem is about more than just personal debt, though? Is there a different kind of debt you're exploring, too? Yeah, I think that um, there are moments where I talk to about sort of the debt of language, the debt of of what we've learned, um, and uh, you know the way in which what everything we're um, encountering in a particular moment is a, is a is is built out of our own our own past, which is a kind of debt. The debt of language. Say more about that. Well, I mean, as a as a poet or just as a human, we are uh, are using language and. Um, communicating through language. And um, I think that, you know, language is built over time, built to the present, and we're trying to use it to, uh, to communicate and to do things. And that itself is a kind of human debt. Fascinating. So the title of this collection is Post. Mm-hmm. So that's the word post with a hyphen after it, and then a blank space. Mm-hmm. Uh, what goes in that blank space? Post what? Well, I think that blank space is meant to be blank and meant to be fillable. Um, so, what do you fill it with? Uh, well, a lot of things. I think um, you know a number of the poems in the book are called post elegies, and those poems are um, thinking about. Uh, well, I think of a post elegy as a. Um, so, when you lose someone, right, you have a kind of acute uh, emotional loss, but then there's a time where that sort of um, lessens or subsides, and then. Uh, you find yourself still with that loss resonating, but more as I think of it resonating in the imagination rather than um, sort of what in the heart. And so was that um, the progression uh, with your loss of your father? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, the, the loss becomes less acute and goes into the background. Yeah. But it still exists. Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't. It never goes away. And I, this book was published in 2016. He died in 2008. So you can imagine there was a significant amount of time there when I was writing these poems. Mm. Uh, indeed, there uh, is a series of poems with that title, Post Elegy. And the first one begins, after the plane went down, the cars sat for weeks in long-term parking. Then, one by one, they began to disappear from among the cars of the living. Uh, such a, a vivid picture there. There's the entirety of this poem at cprnews.org. Is is this supposed to be post 9-11? I mean, that was in my mind. I, I was flying a lot when I was writing this book. And so I kept going. I lived in Kansas City at the time. And I kept going to the long-term parking lot there and um, riding this little shuttle uh, over to the airport. And I kept thinking at a certain point, well, what would happen if this plane went down? What would happen to all these cars that are sitting here? Um, and oh, then that, it's a dark imagination you have, Wayne Miller. Well, and then I started to think about nine eleven and the fact that this did actually happen um, all over the country. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the poem "Landings" is comprised of twenty three beautiful but seemingly unrelated images. For example, the animal writhing in the net knows one thing: it is not the net. The coating of dust on your eyeglasses marks not the time since you died, but since I put them down. Watermelons are full of rain. What's going on in this poem with so many different images? So I wrote this poem. My daughter was born in 2011, and I had this fear that I would never write again because, as you as you can imagine, uh, as you might know, I don't know, a, a newborn um, uh, sucks up a lot of time. And so... Um, 
So I, I opened a Word doc on my computer, and whenever I had um, images that resonated, things that I saw, I just wrote them down. And at a certain point, I had something like 65 or 70 of these. And of course, some of them were um, god-awful. And so, um, <laughs> so I, I got rid of those and eventually sort of pared it down um, to these – I imagine them as moments of sort of landing into – what into writing or landing, even touching down into the world somehow visually. They're vignettes, that seem really. Yeah, they are. Yeah. They're almost aphoristic, but I wouldn't quite call them aphorisms. Uh, the coating of dust on your eyeglasses marks not the time since you died, but since I put them down. Is, are those your father's glasses? They are. In that yeah. case, they are. Yeah. How powerful his eyeglasses, which were so close to his person. Uh, your poem, Ballad, begins, That spring the shooter was everywhere. Shot from our minds into the hedgerows, the pickup beds, and second-floor windows. Uh, how did this poem come to be about a shooter? There were a couple of things that triggered this poem. Um, for 12 years, I lived in Kansas City, and I taught, right, 11 years I lived in Kansas City and taught out in this little town of Warrensburg, Missouri. And it was something like a 50-mile drive each way to get out there. I had just gotten my job in Denver and was going to be moving here, and I knew that I wasn't going to have to do this really long commute anymore. And right in the last month or two that I was uh, doing that drive, there was a highway shooter in what's called the Grandview Triangle that I had to drive through. He shot into something like 12 cars over a period of a month and a half. And my daughter would be in the car with me driving out there because she was in preschool. And so much of this poem is intentionally sort of blurry. Some of what happens in it is um, real and some of it is in the speaker's imagination. And then the other thing that really triggered the poem was uh, a sense that there were all of these shooters in the news at that time. And I, I, I realized that I started imagining them all as being sort of the same shooter just popping up over and over again. And at that point, um, that, I mean, that's sort of how the poem operates. The poem is ballad, American 21st century, and uh, we've posted the whole thing at cprnews.org. It strikes me that so much of the fear we would have around a shooter is in our imagination, mm -hmm. uh, that um, if we have not been directly terrorized, we are psychologically terrorized, mm -hmm. you know, by that. And so uh, it, there's a lot of fodder there for the imagination, yeah. which is what a poet seeks out, I suppose. Yeah. So in the poem, the a lot of the poem is in the car and, um, you know, my daughter is in the back seat, and um, I'm imagining the kinds of things that could happen if uh, if this shooter were to shoot into our car. But also there um, there's an evening in the poem where the speaker is sitting in his bathroom looking at his cell phone and, you know, reading the news and thinking about what's going on and, um, and the way in which it might or might not impact his life. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner and Denver poet Wayne Miller is with us. His new collection is called Post. It is up for a Colorado Book Award and it has won the Wilkie Prize as well. Uh, in contrast to all of the darkness, there's the poem for Harper, 20 months old. And why don't we have you wrap up the show by reading this poem? For Harper, 20 months old. I imagine your sleep as a flashlit tent in the narrow dark of your room. And when your beam slides suddenly across the nylon, we hear you stir. Through the monitor, you come to us, aerated like tap water. You're dreaming, and the unknowable reservoir of you becomes in that moment more clearly unknowable and fills our room with sound. Through the monitor, you come to us, aerated like tap water. Is that a baby monitor? Yes. Uh-huh. 
And what does it mean to come to you aerated like tap water? Tell me more about this poem. Well, we had a really cheap baby monitor, and, <laughs> okay. uh, so the sound was very bad. <laughs> and so, yeah, it had exactly that effect, and that's what I'm trying to describe. I see. And what are you trying to describe more universally in For Harper, 21 Sold? Yeah, I think that there's a way that, um, you know, we spend as parents, especially for me as a young parent, for my wife as, an, as a young parent, we, we spend this time um, – constantly paying attention to our children and constantly sort of living inside their world, uh, especially when they're young and they're so demanding of our time. Um, and yet there's this perpetually unknowable quality to them. They are their own people. Yeah. And uh, we... It's, that's so interesting, right? Because a baby is so dependent on you and yet is its own separate person. Yeah. And you only have a very limited amount of control over who they're going to become or what they're going to do. So you said that you feared when you had kids that you wouldn't write again. I, I gather that has turned out not to be the case. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I've been writing. I have uh, maybe half of another book that I'm sort of working on for better or for worse. So your fear got away with you on that one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> fear is generative. <laughs> thanks for being with us. It's apparently great fodder for you as well. Wayne, thanks for being with us. Thank you. See you, Denver. Professor Wayne Miller is the author of four books of poetry. His latest, Post, as we said, has won the Wilkie Award, easy for me to say, and a Colorado Book Award finalist position. You can read many of these poems in their entirety at cprnews.org. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today. Glad you could spend time with us at CPR News.